Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat, your hosts, Ollie and Dr. Pete. We're solution architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to AWS Tech Chat. It's Dr. Pete here with you today. Now, in this episode, we've got a whole bunch of cool things to announce and uh, make you aware of, um, but it will be we're just with me. Uh, as I speak, Olivia Klein is uh, climbing up on stage uh, somewhere in Brisbane, Australia, to talk at the Developer Days event. So without a further ado, let me jump in because there's been a whole bunch of buzz on the interwebs around the VMware cloud on AWS. There's a lot of noise, and uh, if um, you would like, it's, orig- it's now available in US West, in Oregon region. So VMware Cloud on AWS brings you VMware's software-defined data center to the AWS cloud. So this essentially lets you run applications across operationally consistent VMware vSphere environments, which traditionally have been uh, private, public, or hybrid cloud environments, uh, now available on top of AWS as a service. So what that means is that you can use the same VMware tools, including vSphere, vSAN, NSX, and uh, vCenter on-premises on top of AWS cloud without having to purchase any new or custom hardware or rewrite your applications or modify any of your operating systems it's now available as a service now this service automatically provisions infrastructure and provides full virtual machine compatibility uh, with all of your workloads that you've been running most likely on your premises and you can now run them on the AWS cloud now this is a SaaS service offered by VMware so in this case, you you know can bring of your VMware infrastructure into AWS. So the VMware cloud on AWS provides dedicated single tenant infrastructure which supports four, uh, between four to 16 um, hosts in a vSphere cluster. So this basically gives you the access to um, the AWS Elastic infrastructure. Now this is a bare metal AWS infrastructure on top of which um, the VMware hypervisor is running, and it also has access to the next generation storage optimized higher instances. Um, and it features low latency, non-volatile memory express NVMe based SSD for storage. So the good news is it's available initially in the US West Oregon region, um, and will expand to all the other regions worldwide. Um, and you have to be aware that um, this service is available on demand, there are no upfront costs, and you only pay for what you use on a per hour basis. And VMware is actually delivering this on demand. So um, it's not actually provided by AWS, it is VMware providing VM infrastructure as a service on top of EC2, which is actually very cool because there's no nesting of hypervisors, uh, which means you get absolute high throughput. And the nice thing about this is that uh, you do get access to all of our existing um, AWS services if you would like to build uh, augmented applications or access some of the services uh, that you are probably already using. Now, with this, um, you may have also noticed that as you log into the AWS console, it looks a little bit different. So yes, as of August 25th, uh, you will now would have noticed that there are slight improvements in the way you log into the account. 
So as you sign to the account, um, as a root user or as an um, AWS Identity Access Management IAM user, um, you get to actually have a slightly different user experience. So you no longer have to use an account-specific URL to sign in as an IAM user. However, the account-specific URL you have been using in the past will continue to work. So the first thing you'll notice is that uh, the first step of the new sign-in experience, you can log in as a user, a root user with your email address or your IAM user ID. Once you've typed that in, uh, you'll get prompted for the actual password. If you are a root user, even if you're an IAM user, you enter your username and password. And also, if you've enabled multi-factor authentication, or MFA, on that particular account, you'll be prompted to enter the code from your MFA device. And essentially, um, once you've successfully lo uh, logged in, uh, you will be able to access the uh, management console as, as usual. So just a bit word of warning, um, with some of these changes, you may, you may need to make uh, some small updates to password managers in case you are using in-browser password managers so that they will continue to work with a new sign-in experience. I use Chrome all the time, and um, it seemed to have worked quite well. So if that wasn't enough, well, the other cool additional uh, improvements uh, have come to Amazon Route 53 with the uh, essentially support for geo-proximity routing with traffic biasing, which is a bit of a mouthful. But as you guys are probably aware, Route 53 has uh, lots of uh, bells and whistles. Uh, and with this um, service release and this improvement, um, this allows your Route 53 traffic flows to now use geo-proximity, which means that you can enter in, uh, say, a longitude and a latitude address, and then we will hand out the appropriate route details of the IP address or service endpoint that you would like us to hand out. So what does that really mean? Which means that when you create a traffic flow policy, you can specifically either uh, point to an AWS region if you're using AWS resources, or you can actually have that point to a different endpoint, like a longitude and latitude. So what that actually means is that uh, we will decide, um, based upon your input, uh, that if you have, say, resources in uh, Ohio region and perhaps in uh, Oregon, so across the U.S., two different uh, resources. So when a user um, tries to log in and access it, say, from L.A., Los Angeles, from your browser, the geoproximity routing will actually say, okay, well, where is this person coming from? and it will start to hand out IP addresses uh, based upon the user's proximity. Hence why the, uh, the longitude and latitude become so interesting because we will try to figure out what is the closest region. And yes, in the past, you've been able to use uh, you know, Route 53 latency-based routing. This is a, an extension on top of that, which says, hey, based upon where, where you think you are and where you want us to point to, we'll figure out what is the best way to actually get your traffic flowing uh, to the appropriate endpoint which is actually very, very cool. So uh, to set this up, you can do it in the console, but um, quite often, this often ends up being a traffic policy um, entry. Uh, so when you actually set those up, which you can do both in the console or through the APIs, and of course the CLIs as well, uh, you can also enter a bias. Now, what a bias is, it basically specifies a value between minus 99 and 99, with the default being zero, where you want to route more traffic to a particular endpoint depending on the nearby endpoints. And these can essentially be set up so that in the previous example, if you're using Oregon and you were using, say, um, um, uh, US East, uh, or in this case, Ohio, as I was saying before, you can then say, hey, I want to have more traffic flowing to this particular endpoint. So the bias essentially says, even though um, you are closer to a particular endpoint, uh, we will actually 
request that a little bit more traffic gets sent to a different location. Now, what that means is you gotta be very mindful of that is that it can actually have more significant traffic coming towards you. So the bias value is obviously relative and it depends on the actual location. Uh, so you may wanna tweak that bias value incrementally um, uh, maybe from like a 10 to a 15. So make sure you use small increments and have a look at what kind of impacts this has on your um, infrastructure because uh, you could be pushing a lot more traffic than you think to a particular service endpoint. So I hope uh, you, know, you guys can find a lot of great uses for this. And speaking of Route 333, uh, it also now supports CAA records. And you're probably wondering what those things might be. So a CAA resource record set, which stands for the Certification Authority Authorization Record, uh, lets you specify the certificate authorities that can issue certificates for your domains and your subdomains. And it's actually quite an important nuance. Now, this is becoming more and more of a, of a mandated thing online, where the CAA brings um, Route into compliance with the Certification Authority and Browser Forum requirement that actually checks for the presence of a DNS CAA record before issuing a certificate for a domain. So um, the, CA, the CAA record has been defined in RFC 6844. Uh, so go check it out. That was published back in 2013. And it basically says um, it allows a DNS domain holder to specify one or more um, certificate authorities that you authorize as an owner of that domain to issue certificates for your particular domain. So that means that if someone was trying to potentially create fake certificates, um, their systems should now be looking at your Route 53 records for the CA resources and say, hey, am I allowed to create certificates on behalf of this particular owner? And uh, as you probably guys all know, uh, one of the interesting things around security is to ensure that uh, you know, you're only as good as the, the weakest link. So this becomes a very, very important element and adds extra security to your infrastructure. Now, speaking of elastic load balancers, I'm also very pleased to let you guys know that the ALB or the application load balancer now supports load balancing to IP addresses as targets for AWS and on-premises resources, which is really, really great because that now means that you are able to uh, load balance your traffic to AWS resources using their IP addresses as targets in addition to the instance ID. So when you think about how you add an instance to a, uh, a load balancer, we generally ask you for the instance ID and we have in the past, but now uh, you can actually use an IP address uh, to load balance your traffic through. Now this includes the ability to essentially uh, load balance to resources outside of the VPC uh, that are running your workloads. Now this is really cool because um, you can use uh, endpoints or other IP addresses in VPCs that you've peered with in EC2 Classic, as well as on-premises locations, which are reachable over AWS Direct Connect or through a VPN tunnel. So what this means is that load balancing across AWS and on-premise resources has now become a, a whole lot easier um, because it lets you simplify the migration to cloud, burst to cloud, or potentially failover to cloud scenarios. Uh, so you can set up a, an ALB, have the ALB point to something deep, deep, deep inside of your data center, which you've been able to connect to via Direct Connect. And then uh, as you migrate your workloads into AWS, you can start to change the target groups.
So this is really cool for customers who are running hybrid applications and uh, have, a, I guess, a bit of a, a longer journey uh, to move to AWS. Um, and a lot of customers have actually asked us that they looked for a whole bunch of scenarios like this uh, to enable them to spread traffic across a combination of existing on-premises resources as well as those new resources they've created inside AWS Cloud. So the good news is, so if you have uh, the VPCs with lots and lots of infrastructure in, or you have um, hosts sitting on premises, uh, you can still reach these via IP addresses. Now, what's also interesting is that if you do have instances that have uh, multiple IP addresses on EC2, you can still point the ALB at those IP addresses. So for scenarios which are, for example, you know, require you know, uh, the development of microservices or you're having multiple instances of a service running on the same host, perhaps with containers as a use case, uh, you can have you know, multiple interfaces and uh, lots and lots of fine-grained controls over where you actually load balance your traffic. So that's an important nuance because uh, quite often when we, in the past, when we used to load balance to your EC2 instances we would always load balance at a primary IP address and the primary network interface. But what this now gives you is the ability to have a fine-grained control of where you target your um, traffic. So speaking of ALB, you probably are very familiar with the, the concept of a target group. Um, and a target group really is uh, a potential set of auto-scaling uh, endpoints uh, that uh, would be receiving traffic. So in this case, you will create target groups um, which actually point to a designated IP address. Now, when you actually set these up, um, each load balancer at the moment can accommodate up to a thousand different targets, which is really cool. So uh, that's probably uh, more than enough for most use cases. Uh, if that's not enough, do let us know and see what we can do. Uh, but be very mindful that also when you register and um, you register the actual target by IP addresses, be mindful of the IP ranges that you're actually using. Um, because uh, you cannot register publicly routable IP addresses. So things like um, uh, that are inside your VPC or that are on your premises, uh, they probably won't be publicly facing IP addresses. Uh, so definitely you are uh, able to route your traffic to those, um, but you can't simply point the ALB at other public endpoints. So uh, that's available today for all existing and new application load balancers. Now, there's been a fair bit of talk so far around the network, and uh, one of my other very, very favorite topics of discussion is the VPC. Um, and the VPC environment now allows customers to expand their existing VPCs with extra address ranges, which means that uh, you can start to make the VPCs a little bit more elastic. So what does that actually mean? So that means you can now add a secondary IPv4 address range, so a side range to your existing VPCs. And you probably may, may be aware that we support VP IPv6 as well, so be aware of that. Um, but now by adding the secondary CIDR block um, to the VPC directly, you can do it from the console or from the CLI. Um, this will now let you actually bring a secondary range into your VPC for IPv4 addressing. So the key benefits here are that um, the customers who are launching more and more resources in their VPCs can now actually start to scale out and extend uh, the VPCs almost on demand. Um, another use case is that uh, customers no longer have to over allocate private IP address spaces. So quite often we see uh, customers uh, selecting very large address ranges and sometimes realize that they don't necessarily need them or effectively use them. 
So this is another great example of saying, hey, I'm going to have multiple blocks of address ranges uh, in the one single VPC. And the good thing about this is that there is no additional charge for this feature. Um, and this feature is available in all AWS region, except for um, uh, GovCloud and the, the Beijing region. So the other thing to also mention, and this is a bit of a sidebar for you guys, is that um, whenever you allocate a subnet Cedar uh, range, so say a block of 10.0.0.0 slash 24, um, you don't actually get all of the IPs within that actual block um, because we reserve five IP address ranges, well, other, other addresses. So the first one is at the, is dot zero, which is a network address, which is not really usable, as you probably all know from networking. Uh, but a dot one is reserved by AWS for the VPC router. So all the packets flowing within a VPC uh, eventually will traverse and get to a dot zero, which is at the base um, of the actual block in this case. And uh, that is how packets flow between subnets. And a dot two at the base again uh, of the actual CIDR block in this case, or the subnet, um, is also reserved by AWS. And this is the IP address of the DNS server. And by the way, if you have multiple um, CIDR blocks that you happen to be using into the VPC, it will always be allocated uh, and respond to the actual uh, first CIDR block that was actually created. So even though you might create a secondary CIDR block, uh, this is always going to be referring to the first one. So be aware of that. Uh, and a dot three is also reserved for future use and a dot five five, which is a network broadcast address. Uh, we do not support broadcast in, in a VPC as you may be aware. Uh, so again, this is also reserved for potentially future use. So yeah, so when you think about your IP address uh, and um, NetMask designs, uh, do keep a mind and think about that you don't actually get every single IP address. All right, now, speaking of addresses, I've talked a lot so far about those, um, but the other thing that's also been added, and this is actually a bit unique because it's only available through the CLI at the moment, is that uh, within the VPC, we now allow customers to recover accidentally released elastic IP addresses. Now, put your hand up if you're guilty of this, like myself, I have accidentally released elastic IP addresses, and then I went, oh no, I wish I could get it back. So as of now, uh, within a VPC, we now provide customers the opportunity to recover elastic IP addresses that you may have accidentally released back into the pool. Um, now, what that means is you can recover accidental deletions, but there are a couple of conditions here. Um, and that is um, you can recover the elastic IP address as long as it hasn't been allocated to another customer. So you have to be really, really quick. Um, and then the only way to also recover the EIP uh, is to recover it through the CLI or the APIs by um, using the allocate-address command and specifying the IP address as the address parameter, uh, and you got to give the EIP address that you have lost. So this feature is available in all regions, uh, and I think a very, very useful one in this case. All right, now, Networking generally is, we've been talking about so far, is generally considered a little bit geeky. Uh, and one of the cool things about being in the cloud is the ability to tag. And you guys are probably remembering that I'm a big fan of tagging. Um, and now we're actually bringing tagging uh, to security groups, which is really, really cool. So basically we've now enabled you um, 
to be able to uh, look at your security groups. So quite often a security group has its own description, uh, but an individual port that you actually open up, um, maybe open for web traffic, for HTTPS, or secure traffic, or for some other ports and functions. Um, and many of our customers have actually been asking if we could also allow tagging on that because they've been using spreadsheets or other documents uh, to keep tabs. What exactly is this port open for? So uh, right now you have the ability in all regions um, to be able to uh, describe and tag all of the security groups so that you can now know exactly what they are. And it works both in the AWS VPC and in the AWS EC2 Classic security group mode. So that's actually very useful because now you can actually track and figure out exactly why this port may have been opened. Um, and if you're super clever and uh, bonus points to those of you guys who might even put owners uh, and uh, additional information in those descriptors, in those tags to be able to help you identify who might be the actual application and uh, you know, provide a much richer descriptor of what is the purpose of that port being open there. So the security group, which is fabulous. Now, more IP conversations. All right, so how many of you have used the um, Amazon Simple Email Service? Well, you may be aware that we've actually had dedicated IP addresses for that service, and we now have dedicated IP address pools for sending email. So um, what this actually means is that's the introduction of a dedicated IP pools um, for sending your emails. So as an example, if you send a lot of email via the Simple Email Service, so SES, uh, you may choose to deliver uh, certain kind of emails via different IP addresses because they have reputations. So in this case, you can now actually define, so you can have a, a number of pools as we call them. So you can have a, a number of leases of dedicated IP addresses just for yourselves. So you can organize this into groups that we call pools and you can then associate each pool with a configuration set and when you send an email that specifies a configuration set, that email will be delivered, so it'll be sent from the particular IP addresses in the associated pool. So the dedicated IP pools are specifically useful for customers who send lots of different kinds of email, uh, and like I said, and they have different kinds of reputations. So uh, that is a very useful way of using those IP addresses and then assigning emails to particular pools. Uh, the SES dedicated IP pools are now available in uh, US, uh, so in Oregon, in Virginia, and also in Ireland. All right, so moving from sending emails uh, to you know, SQL Server RDS databases. Well, I'm really pleased to let you guys know that you can now create RDS SQL Server databases instances with up to 16 terabytes of storage, uh, up from the four terabyte limit that we had previously. Uh, and with that, increase, um, you also get access to more provisioned IOPS as well as general purpose SSD storage IOPS. And uh, we've also changed the range of IOPS for the storage, which is, which is now increasing from 10 to one ratio to 50 to one. So that means large database sets and uh, higher IOPS uh, are now relatively easy to set up now. Um, so if you have databases that are, or data warehouses um, that support you know, very high-end sort of requirements and storage, um, you can now do it very quickly with a push of a button. So um, all these limit increases are now available in all regions where you have IDS and SQL Server. So when you look at performance, and for example, if you look at your databases, um, quite often you look at things like CloudWatch metrics. And these things are really, really important to be able to perhaps give you better insights into exactly what's going on in your environment. 
So CloudWatch metrics and uh, now provide you the addition of horizontal annotations for your dashboards and your metrics. So what does that actually mean? So horizontal annotations can serve as a very much a quick visual check of the metrics crossing perhaps a predefined value, such as perhaps an SLA. Uh, I'll give you more contextual information for interpreting metric values. Um, so in this case, you can um, add lines at key values on the y-axis on your, on your graphs and uh, optionally even shade areas between those lines so that you can analyze your graph metrics at a glance really, really quickly. So to get started, you can add horizontal annotations via the management console or again, programmatically for the APIs or the SDKs. Um, and these horizontal annotations are available in all commercial AWS regions. So these are awesome for those of you who are trying to figure out exactly which bits you're trying to uh, uh, compare against SLAs or perhaps thresholds uh, or P90 or P99s. So speaking of CloudWatch metrics and CloudFormation, who would have thought these things would come together? But guess what? They have. So CloudFormation adds rollback trigger features at the moment. Now, rollback triggers enable you to have your AWS CloudFormations um, that are being deployed to monitor the state of your application during a stack creation or an update and to roll back that operation if the application breaches a particular threshold um, you know, of any alarms that you've actually specified that you want CloudFormation to watch. So for example, for, a, so for each rollback trigger that you create, which is what CloudWatch will monitor, you specify the alarm that CloudFormation should be looking at. And if that, for example, uh, CloudFormation monitors the specified alarms and during the stack creation or update operations, as well as for um, the uh, a specified amount of time after all of the resources have been, have been deployed. So if any of these alarms go into an alarm state during the stack operation or the monitoring period after the stack's been brought up, CloudFormation will potentially roll back the entire stack which is very, very cool. Now, if uh, uh, the monitoring period expires without any alarms going off, CloudFormation will then go ahead and proceed to dispose of all of the older resources as it usually does. So this is a great way of providing some extra intelligence into CloudFormation. So when stacks are being brought up, uh, things are being monitored along the way, as well as after the stack's been brought up to make sure that the environment has stabilized. Very, very handy. So that's probably a very useful thing that most um, uh, you know, continuous integration and, um, you know, um, infrastructure might be creating for you. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's often the world of developers. Uh, and for developers, we've also got something really, really awesome. And that is um, AWS Beanstalk now supports Windows.NET Core 2.0. So for those of you who've been living in the Microsoft world and love .NET like I do, uh, you now have support for .NET 2.0 and Beanstalk. So uh, you can deploy, you know, .NET 2 0.0 core uh, applications on Beanstalk, through the console, through the CLIs, or directly through Visual Studio. Um, and again, you can leverage the deployment manifest to configure deployments uh, to, to customize those. Uh, and you can also have multiple .NET Core 2.0 applications running on a single Windows server environment in Beanstalk. So from building .NET Core applications on Beanstalk, um, how about building conversational chatbots with Amazon Lex? And Amazon Lex is a great service for building conversational chatbots. And these chatbots, um, when you build them, quite often need to have synonyms. Uh, so things um, that people say that are similar, you probably want to group into a, you know, a bucket, if you like, of, uh, of the same things. So this is where the synonym functionality comes in 
for slots. So in this case, I have a slot value um, that is, say, comedy uh, or funny or humorous as a specified synonym, then these inputs uh, can all be grouped together and resolved to the one slot, say, comedy. So you can optimize your business logic of those applications, so those chatbots that you're building, uh, and just focus predominantly on the slot values instead of building really complex synonyms. So in addition to this, the chatbot automatically can resolve you know, minor variants of the slot value as well to the original value that you're actually looking for. So for example, if someone said, if you've got a slot called pineapple and uh, somebody says pineapples, say plural, uh, then that slot can be resolved to the word pineapple. So again, that simplifies. So you get synonyms, but also essentially stemming of words as well. And if that wasn't enough, you can now validate user input and restrict it to a fixed set of values. So you can enable this by configuring the slot resolution strategy so that the slot is resolved only if the user value is the same as one of the slot values or the synonyms, which is also very, very cool. So that means you can restrict what the actual values are that are being passed in. So as um, if you haven't had a chance to play with uh, Amazon Lex, go check it out. It's available in uh, US East in the Virginia region. So if that wasn't enough, uh, you know, we talk about a whole bunch of entire solutions being deployed on AWS. And uh, many a time on the show, we've talked about quick starts. And I'm really excited to let you know that you can deploy IBM's message queue on AWS with a brand new quick start. Uh, this quick start was created with um, our partnership with IBM. Uh, and uh, for those of you who you know, haven't really dived into those quick starts, these are really um, automated reference deployment guides for you know, key workloads uh, to be deployed on AWS. Generally, each of these quick starts launches, configures, and runs a complete um, compute, network, storage, and perhaps other services that need to be deployed, like maybe load balancing. Um, and these are generally around AWS best practices around security and availability for that particular workload. So in this case, um, inside about 30 minutes, you can be a proud owner of running IBM MQ server on AWS. And uh, the IBM message queue is really a you know, a messaging middleware that's been around for quite a while that simplifies and accelerates the integration of diverse applications and um, business data across multiple different platforms. So it uses message queues to facilitate the exchange of information and offers a single messaging solution uh, for you know, your cloud, mobile, you know, Internet of Things, and also for on-premises environments. So by being able to connect virtually almost anything together, so think of things like um, the simple queuing service, that we have. Uh, this is another version of that if you like, uh, but more specific and has been around for a lot longer uh, across multiple different platforms. Um, the, uh, the MQ service on AWS will you know, support lots of different clients, so you can actually connect um, your on-premises applications, uh, potentially via Direct Connect uh, or via other endpoints. And what you get uh, when you actually deploy this quick start is um, you get some Bastion hosts, um, which you can log in into so that you can actually log into the uh, MQ server. But we also spin up a load balancer and an autoscaling group, which has the IBM message queue infrastructure in it. Um, the nice thing is that uh, if you've already got your own uh, IBM message queue program license, you can put it into an S3 bucket. Um, and we'll use that. But if you haven't got one, um, the QuickStart will automatically sign you up for a 30-day trial period. So it's a great way to experiment with other technologies. Um, and you know, inside 30 or so minutes, uh, you can have an entire deployment.
And if that wasn't enough, we've also got another quick start on deploying Nginx on AWS Cloud. And for those of you who may have used Nginx, uh, it's an application delivery platform. Uh, basically, it's an open source web server and a reverse proxy for really high traffic sites. So the Engine um, X Plus, uh, in this case, adds uh, a great deal of functionality because uh, it provides uh, load balancing. It's great for web and mobile acceleration, uh, for security, monitoring, and management. So we actually, again, uh, for this quick start, we've uh, uh, teamed up with the Nginx Inc. organization uh, to put together the actual uh, quick start. So if you go ahead and deploy that as well, uh, it takes about 25 minutes to get up and running and includes things like the Nginx auto-scaling group sync integration software, which monitors auto-scaling groups and adds or potentially removes web application instances as necessary from the Nginx environment. And this is basically based upon your configuration settings. Is an auto-scaling group for your Nginx infrastructure where you can tune your desired capacity for you know the typical you know minimum maximum and desired states um, so it's a very cool quick start because again uh, it can be deployed inside a brand new vpc or perhaps uh, inside an existing one so guys uh that's all i have time for so we've had a lot of things uh, to talk through today and you know we talked about route 53 we talked about new record types we talked about load balancing and being able to flick traffic to uh, basically, you know, IP addresses now, uh, either in other VPCs that you may have peered with or perhaps on-premises if you've got a network connectivity back to your uh, hybrid you know, infrastructure. We talked about being able to uh, recover your lost elastic IP addresses if you by so happen to have uh, you know, uh, released it to the pool. We've talked about you know, SES sending email for dedicated IP addresses. There's been a fair bit of focus on networking. So guys, I've really hoped you've enjoyed the show. Uh, tune again for the next episode. And until then, happy coding and uh, happy clouding. See you guys. Signing off, this is Ollie and Dr. Pete. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com.